0: Hi, this is Paul. I've been continuing to think about how to um, how to process the Exodus seminar on my channel, and I know some of you are like, "Well, why don't you just jump into it and do commentary?" Uh, yeah, I mean that's sort of easy to do, but unlike unlike a lot of my projects where my videos are sort of I've got an idea and here it is, and I'm going to put it out there, and the like the uh, the meaning stack, where I'm sort of exploring something. These videos are a little bit more presentational, and so I think a little bit more of them. And the more I thought about it, the more I remembered, of course, the the Genesis series. And um, I I was thinking actually, I don't recall if I ever gave uh, I didn't in the first run give all of the biblical series much as much. Um, attention is, let's say, the first one. I thought the first one in terms of him setting up God was really important, but by the 15th um, on Joseph, I didn't treat it as as thoroughly. Now, of course, if you're going to jump into Exodus, you have to know why the children of Israel are in Egypt, and there's a lot as with any continuation of a story, there's a lot in the previous story that you have to think about in the next part of the story. I know some of you are very familiar with the Bible and some of you are not as familiar with the Bible. Those some of you might know about the Bible Project, and of course, some will like it and some will not. One of the things that the Bible Project is doing, and they've done this for a number of years, there are sort of the old style videos where they went through every book of the Bible, and this, and where they sort of had, uh, let's see, where's the, see, I'm I'm trying to use some of these tabs where they used this sort of format to sort of walk through the book, and then they have their newer series where they, uh, let's see, where they use more of a, they use more of a cartoon segment. I haven't. I haven't actually watched the series. I probably should. But it's a very different approach and very different style to try to present the Bible. And I actually like the older style, but I haven't looked at the new style as closely. So perhaps um, I like the new style. But I wanted to make some observations about Genesis. Part of what I like about the way that the Bible Project was doing things before is because they, I think, in a in a fairly clear way showed a certain amount of structure. And one of the things to remember about Genesis is that the book is does definitely take sort of a turn between the first section, sometimes it's called primordial history or first things. So for especially for people who know nothing about the Bible or for whom the Bible is is a rather strange book. I find these videos to, to sort of be very helpful to give you a, a very quick overview of some of the themes that are developed. Now, of course, with, with just about everything with the Bible, nearly anything that's presented will be contested. That's, that's just the way it is with a book this deep, a book this old, a book this important. So those of you who know nothing of the book of Genesis uh, might be interested in the Bible Projects Genesis series. Um, so I actually rewatched watched um, the biblical series 15 on Joseph and the Code of Many Colors. And I thought, just, just watching it now four years later, I learned a lot just in terms of, wow, this is, well, almost five years ago. Yeah, five years ago. It was December 2017 that he wrapped up the first biblical series. And you can... I'll just I'll just play a lot of this video and I'll do commentary on it. So I thought this might be a good way to get into the the commentary on the Exodus seminar. Really look forward to him doing the public presentations of Exodus and see where he goes with it. But uh, let's let's jump in.
1: That's a hell of a welcome for someone who's going to talk about the Bible
0: and again part of what was so amazing about the biblical series was just the shock of it that again this is in a secular space because i i have to keep reminding many of you who don't at all live in a church world or in a synagogue world that um, millions and millions of millions every week pay attention to the bible um, millions and millions every day pay attention to the bible the bible is that informative and that influential in the world but how many people in toronto are doing that and and that was one of the big that was one of the big that was sort of why this was such a a momentous occasion this was a big leap forward in this that the theater was full of people who uh, many of whom don't go to church
1: So, I thought I would get farther than through Genesis by, by this point, but I'm, I'm not unhappy about the pace either. I've learned a tremendous amount, and so hopefully what we'll do today is finish Genesis completely. And then I think I'll try to start up with Exodus in May,
0: depending on... Now, Genesis is a big book, and there's a ton to say about it, and even 15... 15- sessions on Genesis by no means exhausted all of the themes and what the book was about.
1: ...on what happens next year. Start up with Exodus in May.
0: Okay, so he's talking in December 2017, and he hoped to, at that point he said, start Exodus in May of 2017. Little did he know that, of course, Twelve Rules for Life would be a monumental hit. Little did he know that his wife would come down with cancer. Little did he know that the um, the benzos he was taking was going to start this rolling in his own system. The akathisia, COVID, comatose in Russia. You know, on and on and on and on. It's five years later. <laughs> And if if any of us need a lesson in, you know, the plans of of men and God laughing, well, here it is. So this is Jordan five years ago, and of course, at this point in December 2017, he could in no way imagine where he would be now. But all of this is sort of part of the sort of core Jordan Peterson message, which is do something, engage the world, uh, do so with wisdom. Um, and you don't know where it may take you. Well, that's that's certainly very true.
1: Depending on what happens next year, I have a busy travel schedule. And, but I would... and of
0: course, that would be the book tour, which was not really sort of a book tour because on the book tour, he would develop his practice now, which is doing these extemporaneous speakings in various places all over North America.
1: I would really like to do it. I really like the Exodus story, and I understand it very well. A lot of the stories in Genesis, especially after the first few stories, say up to the Tower of Babel, I had to do a tremendous amount of learning about, which is really good, but I do know the Exodus story, so I'm really looking forward to that.
0: And and it'll be very interesting because the Exodus seminar is over stories that, again, at this point five years ago, he said he felt he knew it very well. So according to Michaela, of course, he's writing a book, um, and I'm really looking forward to this next book. I think it'll be very interesting. And, you know, because of the deals that he's had with publishers, it should come out in audiobooks. So I'll wind up owning three copies, only print version, only Kindle version, and all in the audiobook, but that's the way this goes.
1: So so let's dive right into it and see how far we can get today. So we'll review first. So Joseph's father is Jacob, and Jacob is the Patriarch of Israel, essentially, that the father of the twelve tribes. And um, we, we you might remember that uh, he had a very morally ambivalent pathway through life. And it's one of the things that I think is so interesting about the, the stories in the in the Old Testament is that these so-called patriarchal figures are very realistic, and it's something that... I was also being struck by that. accounts in the New Testament that way. There's lots of things that Christ does that you'd think would have been edited out over time and sanitized, but they're not, and the Old Testament is definitely not a book that's been sanitized, and that's... It's quite interesting that that's the case,
0: so... You- in, in this seminar series, that'll come up as sort of anti-propaganda, and they're right, it's these... these books are written, Dennis Prager actually says a lot about this in the Exodus seminar.
1: You sort of see people with all their flaws, and I've been trying to also derive some general conclusions about the the moral of the story, of the Genesis stories, and um, because these stories are fundamentally moral, and moral as far as I'm concerned has to do with action, right? Because Moral decisions are the decisions that you make when you're structuring action when you decide to do one thing or another generally you want to do things that are the best things that you can think of to do and Hence good, but sometimes you also want to do things that are the worst things you can do, you know, because you're angry or resentful or bitter and So the moral decisions that you make that govern your actions are really the most important decisions that you make in your life And it's not that easy to figure out how to make moral decisions. We don't have an unerring technology for that, the same way as we do for, say, making decisions about empirical reality, which.
0: And, and, you know, when he says this, making decisions about empirical reality, making decisions like technological decisions, this is how I'm going to achieve X in a very simple technological, scientistic way. But the questions about moral decisions and how these narratives factor into moral decisions. I mean, this is exactly what he's talking about when he's talking to Jonathan Peugeot and Douglas Murray in that video that Cosmic Skeptic pointed out. This is why, if if we're to redefine fiction, so I I posted something on Twitter to the effect of, um, uh, I was playing around with the word we, but I framed it in a way that I knew would trigger sort of the modernist fundamentalist um debate and sure enough, bang, just the I've started getting comments from atheist um people with atheology and things like that in their in their Twitter in their Twitter handles and I just sort of triggered this I sort of triggered the spirit on Twitter It was very interesting because where I was thinking about the we aspect of it, um, uh, I've got to take a phone call, hang on.
1: In some ways seem a lot simpler. Um, partly because we can work collectively at it, partly because we have a rigorous methodology for deciding what's true and what's not. So, one of the things that's really struck me, like it's an overarching theme, I would say, that emerges out of Genesis, especially after the really ancient stories, uh, say, especially after the stories of Cain and Abel and... Noah and uh, the Tower of Babel, when you get to the accounts of the historically, more historically real people, one injunction seems to be get the hell out there and do something. You know, one, one of the
0: major. Cla- classic Peterson point.
1: Major themes for all of the patriarchs that we've talked about Abraham, say, Jacob. And Joseph is move out into the world regardless of the circumstances at hand. Now, that's in, in, in the Old Testament stories, that's basically portrayed as hearkening to the voice of God, something like that. Maybe you could think about that as destiny or as a psychological calling. Um, and the funny thing, too, is, is that it's not that these people have an easy time of it when they heed that call. So what's, what's fascinating is that they often run into extreme difficulties right away. And I think that's very interesting, first of all, because life is obviously full of extreme difficulties.
0: And second- Now, now again, when you look at Cosmic Skeptic's complaint about how Jordan Peterson approaches the Bible, Jordan Peterson is approaching the Bible in a very natural way, in a very human way. And Sunday after Sunday, you can hear preachers using the Bible in this way. Um, you know this old this old saw, the Bible may not be written to you, but it's written for you, and through this, through the story, through the characters, you get the sense of participation that that God is calling
1: it's another example of the failure to sugarcoat things, which is one of the things that I think makes a mockery of anti-religious theories that are even quite sophisticated, say like Freud 's, because Freud thought of religion as a as a wish-fulfillment, essentially. And, and also Marx, who thought about religion as the opiate of the masses. It's, if those were true, it, it seems to me that there'd be a lot more wish, and a lot less reality, a lot less stark, harsh reality, you know? I mean, the first thing that Abraham encounters is a famine, and then he has to hide his wife, and then he, he basically journeys into a tyranny, so that's about as bad as it gets in some ways, and, and those themes re- recur continually. And no one ever lives where they're supposed to live. They live in, live in Canaan and not the Promised Land. And so it's a pretty rough, it's a pretty rough series of stories. But the fundamental idea is something like: there's no time for sitting around. There's time to go out into the world and engage. And then there's there's hints about the proper and improper ways of engaging, right? So. Clearly, the improper way to engage is, I think, most clearly delineated in the Cain and Abel story. And with Cain exemplifying the inappropriate way to engage with the world. And that's to engage with the world in a bitter, jealous, and resentful manner. Now, one of the things that I really like about the Cain and Abel story...
0: Now, Now, part of what's interesting listening to this, five years... Uh, from five years ago is that when you look at Peterson's journey, one of the things that when he came out of um, the what is it, is it akathasia? I'm trying to remember the word but but when he came out of that period and he got back and when you when you listen to Michaela's description of what the pain was, that that first interview that they did with the um, the Times of, I believe it was Times of London reporter that went so badly. The poor reporter really tried to kneecap them, and it was just a it was just a disaster. Right when he was just getting back into taking interviews in the public light, one of the things that he mentioned again and again is, "Don't get bitter." I really worked hard on not getting bitter, and so I think in a lot of ways that period was a time where he had to take some of these lessons and try to live them out, and now you can listen to a video like this, you can watch a video, but the truth is you never, all of these lessons are never real to you and you don't really have them until you live them. That's part of the perspectival, participatory, procedural, and, and even not getting bitter, you have to learn how to not get bitter. It isn't just a, a willful decision to not get bitter. One of the things that I, I, I learned from 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 guys who were, wrestling with sobriety uh, was that they developed all sorts of little tricks to either keep from drinking or stay away from drugs or some of this they learned all these little tricks and hacks and the the big goal was okay stay sober and and with something like this the big goal is don't get embittered don't let bitterness have you because if bitterness has you it's going to lead you down a bad path and so then you have to figure out, okay, how not to get bitter. And there's going to be all kinds of little tricks and hacks. Maybe it will be prayer. Maybe it will be music. Maybe it will be confession. Maybe it will be um, counting your blessings. I mean, all sorts of little things. And sometimes they're the campiest things. But you need them to achieve the bigger goal, which is avoiding bitterness.
1: And, and that theme recurs continually with the with the duality of the brothers, right? There's There's constant conflict between a perspective that's essentially like Cain's, and the the opposite perspective, which I'll I'll get to in a minute. But Cain sees that the world is a very uh, tragic place, and that the rewards are distributed unfairly, and that there are people who do better and people who do worse, and as a consequence of that, he becomes bitter and resentful and curses God, and then he becomes homicidal, fratricidal, which is even worse, then he destroys his own ideal, then his descendants basically become genocidal, something like that. So
0: that seems to be the wrong... And what's interesting, again, because I just read Genesis 4 for our men's, our men's Bible study last week, Wednesday night, one of the things that I noticed, this is one of the beauties about the Bible, is that you really want to study the Bible with other people, and that could be... You know, I've got all these commentators behind me in books that could be through peers. And it's really nice to study the Bible with a group of people with a variety of backgrounds and a variety of skills that they bring to it because people will see different things. Trades people will see different things from professionals. will see different things from pastors and psychologists and truck drivers and uh, computer programmers and people who do tile. They'll all see different things. And and then and, and so one of the things that I saw in Genesis four was the reiteration of Genesis three, where the consequence of murdering his brother was for, for Cain to be cast out of God's presence. And it's directly parallel to Adam and Eve being um, kicked out of the garden and their way back towards the tree of the, um, the tree of life being blocked. And so again, as I said before, you see this little step down with the iterations, and it's a gradual slope down of, of corruption and loss. Long way to go
1: about things, you know, unless your goal is to make things worse. Like it, it's not like Cain has a limited number of things has nothing to object to. He's got plenty to object to. His situation actually is bad. He's overshadowed terribly by his brother, who everyone loves, who does extraordinarily well, and who's good at everything.
0: And the story is a bit ambivalent. Now now again, you'll notice that there's embellishment going on here, and that's absolutely normal in terms of sort of taking the story and bringing it into you and bringing it to life. Um, in in verveckian terms it's not exactly analogous but it's it's something analogous to this imaginal that vervecki points to
1: about the reasons for kane's failure although a fair bit of it's laid at his own feet but he's definitely failing and so you can understand why he would have this terrible attitude but the problem is all it does is make it worse so it doesn't seem to be one of the things I've also learned as a psychologist, sort of pondering these sorts of things, is that it's often a lot easier to identify what you shouldn't do than what you should do. Like it's, I think evil is easier to identify than good. I think good is trickier,
0: but evil stands out to some degree, and then at least you can... Chesterton makes almost exactly the same point. Chesterton makes the point that having someone identify evil and try and do the opposite is so much easier. And we're so able to point out evil, but good is, is really hard to, to sort of put your hands on.
1: Say if you're trying to get as far away from that as possible, we could even say just for practical reasons, so your life doesn't become hell and your family life doesn't become hell, at least you could get as far away from that as possible even if you weren't able to conjure up what would constitute a the good as an aim. You could at least avoid those sorts of pitfalls. And I do also think that it's pitfalls like that that really threaten our society right now, you know, that I see a tremendous rise in resentment fueling almost all of the political polarization that's taking place. And it seems unfortunate given that by and by large everyone on the planet is richer than they've ever been. Now that doesn't mean there's no disparity, there's, but there's always disparity. Anyways, Jacob of course, Jacob and Rebekah de- deceive Esau and, so th- and Jacob ends up with, with, uh, with Isaac's blessing and so that's, that's a moral catastrophe and then he has to run because his brother wants to kill him and so that's the
0: fratricidal motif. Well, one of the things that has been growing in me is an increasing dissatisfaction with Renaissance Bible art. So of course here you've got um, here you've got Jacob's ladder and God again as as an old man in the sky. Um, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to get more in in, in t- yeah. I, the Renaissance was an incredible incredibly important period, but I think in a sort of naive way we've in some ways. Hmm. been been taken in by these Im- there Our imagination I, I think part of the reason part of the reason for the commandment do not make a graven image of God, it doesn't say do not make graven images of anything. In fact, the the tabernacle and the temple as described in the Bible are full of of carved images and artwork. In fact, even the Holy of Holies have, have these two massive cherubim that stand over the Ark of the Covenant. It's not that the uh, tabernacle and the temple didn't have any statuary it's that images in some ways are just so powerful for us that um, they're dangerous in our minds
1: again i like that too i think that's real re- really realistic you know one of the things that freud noted constantly and this is where freud really is a genius is that the most intense hatreds and also sometimes the most intense love is within families you know and in the Freudian world of psychopathology, it's all its all inside the family. In, in fact, the pathology in the Freudian world is actually the fact that it's all inside the family, because people who get tangled up in the Freudian familial nightmare, which is roughly Oedipal in structure, can only conceptualize the world in terms of their familial relationships. They've been so damaged by the enmeshment, and the trauma, and the deceit, and the betrayal, and the blurred lines and all of that that they just can't expand past the family and go out in the world so the idea that and and
0: that's a great point too as, as a pastor you wind up dealing with a lot of family systems in in the marriage crisis conversation we've been having so both Eamon and Catherine are you know work in the counseling business rod has um, Rod has a, a self-taught knowledge of psychology, which is which is quite in-depth. But therapy tends to, the, the majority of therapy tends to be to the individual, and it gets that individual well-being. Trying to help with families, oh, it's a whole nother level. Brothers can be at each other's throats, I think
1: is, that's a very powerful idea, and it's not something that people like to think about. So, so Jacob has to leave, and it's no, not surprising because, I mean, what he did was pretty reprehensible. He betrayed his brother. But nonetheless, he's the person who dreams of the ladder that unites heaven and earth. And that's a very perverse thing, you know. It, but one of the things I think it does is give, in some sense, it gives hope to everyone. Because it isn't, you know, if only the good guys win, we're really in trouble. Right, because it's not that easy to be a good guy. It's 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 really not that easy, and most people are pretty keenly aware of all the ways that they fall short, even of their own ideals.
0: Sunday, um, we had a we had our pianist quit, and so and our backup pianist, um, she and her husband, were on their way to church, and they had a car accident on the way to church, so they couldn't get to church. They weren't injured or anything, but. So we were out without a pianist, and um, I, I was as I was as we were singing a cappella, which was actually quite lovely. They were all Christmas; they were all Christmas songs, and so they're very familiar, and everybody could sing them. But I was thinking about the fact that, in a in a funny way, heroes are never known if your army is always winning, and to to be at your extremities affords individuals who might never who might never get to play the part of a hero to step into a gap and do something heroic that hardly happened on Sunday morning but as I was as I was thinking about in many ways i mean this church has churches die kind of the way you watch Let's say a senior citizen slowly lose capacity, and you know I've been watching that at this church for a long time, and it's actually been quite instructive to watch. Well, we can't really pull this off anymore. We can't really pull that off anymore. But um, there there are moments of there are moments of goodness and glory when when things get beyond us, and um, and people have to step up in ways they never thought of before.
1: And so if there was no hope except for the good guys, almost all of us would be lost. And so that's one of the things I really liked and was more surprised about with the Old Testament stories is that these people are they have very complex lives and they make very major moral errors by anyone's standard. And yet if and yet the overall message is still hopeful and the the message that runs contrary to the message of evil, say the message of good is something like, well, there's a lot of emphasis on faith, right? And now, now,
0: one of the things that that struck me when I first listened to these is that theme that Peterson is picking up on is, is so often not understood by many shallow critics of the Bible. They think that the Bible is a, is a is a book of Iron Age rules that we're to sort of follow slavishly. That's that's hardly what the Bible is like. It's a it's astoundingly nuanced and um, artistic literature that, that, can, that can give us wisdom.
1: The, that's a tough one because cynics, people who are cynical about religious structures like to think of faith as the willingness to demolish your intellect in the service of superstition. And you know, well, there's there's something to be said for that perspective. But not a lot, because the
0: reality is much. It, it's really interesting how already, and you saw this in the first wave that that Peterson had a real annoyance with this this regime of the of the new atheists. And to again, hear what Mikhail has to say about his his goals for for his upcoming book, it's interesting that that for somebody who, who wasn't bringing his family to church, someone who didn't go to church. There's a real drive in him to to defend religious people. And my guess is part of that probably came from his clinical practice because in my experience, a lot of middle class and wealthy people have an easier, this is just kind of obvious, have an easier time getting by just because they have more resources. And, and usually, unless they inherited the resources, the fact that they have resources reveals the fact that they have self-discipline, intelligence, um, maybe come from a background which afforded them self-denial, and all these kind of middle-class virtues that, that are helpful in terms of navigating life well. What happens with the poor is that they just don't have the margins, and so when you work with lower socio-economic layers in society, you very quickly begin to see that the poor with virtue can really be can really become saintly because their virtue is well earned, and um, and and in many many cases there's religion behind it. If you're going to be if, you're, if you are poor and you're foolish, it only keeps getting worse often. But many times, if you're working among the poor, the poor who learn to survive have found religion and work it. Because if they don't have religion, things just keep getting worse quickly. Family relations break down. They can't handle money. Addictions grab them. Again for middle class and upper class people, for one hand, often they have more resources in terms of self denial in terms of education in terms of all of those things to avoid some of those pitfalls. but if you're poor, you can really fall victim quickly and easily
1: much' more sophisticated part of the faith that's that that is being insisted upon in the Old Testament is something like and i 'm speaking psychologically here again that it's useful to posit a high high good, to aim at it. so And I, I really think that's practically useful too. The research we've done with the Future Authoring Program, for example, indicates pretty clearly that if you get people to conceptualize an ideal, and a, a balanced ideal, you know, so what do you want for your family, what do you want for your career, what do you want for your education, what do you want for your character development?
0: Now you can jump in with the the example that John Verveke gives often, because he he made the point that if you tell college professors that they should save more for retirement, they don't do it just because they hear it. And this is, Eamon made a point in our last marriage conversation where he said, churches have great values, but they don't know basically how to, I forget the word he used, um, instrumentize them basically to, to give you procedures how to get there. Psychologists often don't have the values of, but they're really good at programming to get someplace. And so Verveke makes the point that in this study then, they, they use the software to take pictures and age them. So they take a, a picture of the professor if they were young and they would age them and the professor would see potentially what they would look like without hair and with wrinkles and with all of this. And that impacted them in helping them say, oh, I am going to get old.
1: How are you going to use your time outside of work? Um, How are you going to structure your use of drugs and alcohol in places where you might get impulsive? How can you avoid falling into a horrible pit? If you really think that through and you come up with an integrated ideal and you you put it above you as something to reach for then you're more committed to the world in a positive way and you're less tormented by anxiety and uncertainty. And so, and that makes sense, right? Because here you are alive and everything. And so, unless you were capable, if you're not capable of manifesting some positive relationship with the fact of your being, then how could that be anything other than hellish? Because it would just be anxiety provoking and terrible because you're vulnerable and there'd be nothing useful or worthwhile to do. Well, that's just not, I just can't see that as a winning strategy for anyone. You can make a rational case for adopting that strategy in that, you know, you can say, well, there's no evidence for for a transcendent morality or for an ultimate meaning. There's no hard empirical evidence. But it seems to me that there's existential evidence as well that has to be taken into account. And, and of course, psychologists have talked about this a lot. Um, Carl Rogers, for example, and Jung, for that matter, Freud, for that matter. Most of the great psychologists have pointed out that, you know, you can derive reasonable information that's, that's solid from your own experience, especially if you also talk to other people. And you can kind of see in your own life when you're on a productive path that sort of ennobles and enlightens you, or a destructive path. And I think it's kind of useful to think that maybe the dichotomy between those two paths might be real. You know, and, and because that also allows you to give credence to your intuitions about that sort of thing. But I don't... Anyways, I don't think it's unreasonable to posit that, since you're alive, adopting the highest possible regard for the fact that you're alive, and that you're surrounded by other creatures that are alive, I just can't see how that can possibly be construed as a losing strategy. And so that's the first thing. So that's something like faith, right? It's faith... It's not, it's not only faith in your being, but it's faith in being as such. And the faith would be something like, if you could orient your being properly, then maybe that would orient you with being as such and you never know like i mean
0: Now, now notice he's in the church world if you talk about faith after the protestant reformation at one level because by no means do all protestants sort of simply reduce faith to the propositional level but he's working with a far more Christian definition of faith here. Now, you know, when I hear this definition that faith is believing things without evidence, no, that's not it at all. Faith is leaning into the unknown um, with a hope for a hope for glory, joy, potential gain, trusting in now again peterson will sort of go into being itself one of the when i'm when i'm dealing with this group one of the shortcuts that i have for asking people is say tell me if being is good neutral or negative most new atheists would have to say being is negative Um, you might if you're gnostic of a certain stripe or nihilistic or suicidal say that being is negative and therefore it's not worth being alive. I asked John Verveke this question once. I said, is being good? He said, yes. And I think that position, I don't know how you can go from being as neutral to being as good unless you have some sense of I would say God. Now, of course, John is a non-theist, but as I pointed out to him a couple of years ago, his non-theism has some resemblances to classical theism, because what has developed into the theist-atheist debate is basically a super thing in the sky, and God is not a, a thing among all the other things in creation. Again, that's what the commandment you shall not make any graven images is all about that God is not something that can be reduced to one element within creation and if you listen to Bishop Barron if you listen to uh, Brett Sockold if you listen to theologians throughout history they will point that out to you but again we have all these images of an old man up there in the cloud and um, and I what those, all of those images sort of subtly do is suggest to us in a deep way that God is a thing, and God is not a thing. It might
1: be true. There's no reason to assume that it wouldn't be true. I mean, even if you just take a strict biological perspective on this and think about us as the product of three and a half billion years of evolution, I mean, we have... Struggled over all those billions of years to be alive and to match ourselves with reality And so, because one of the things I've often wondered is, you know, life is definitely difficult There's no doubt about that and it's unfair and there's inequality and all of those things And people are subject to all sorts of terrible things But I also wonder If you weren't actively striving to make things worse Just how much better could they be?
0: You know, because people are... Very, again, this, you hear this theme, you hear this theme, if you see it again and again and again, this is a big piece of Peterson's message.
1: Very, they're like houses that are divided amongst themselves. They're pointing in six different directions at the same time. They're working at cross purposes to themselves because of bitterness or be, and, and resentment and un what unprocessed memories and childhood hatreds and unexamined assumptions, all sorts of things. And... You you just got to wonder if you could push that aside and orient yourself properly. And then the other thing that, of course, is stressed very heavily in the Old Testament, and, of course, that goes through the entire biblical corpus, is that it's not only enough to establish a positive relationship with being, which I think is the essential... it's a good description of faith. You have to make that decision, right? Because
0: being is very ambivalent. That is a good description of faith. Now, now it's again, it's a little vague. You know, for a Christian, being is being God. No, not exactly. Being, you know, God is bigger than being. But um, it's 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 analogous to it, it's downstream from the 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 description of creation as good but yes and that's leaning in that that's that's just classic jordan petersonism that faith is you know basically leaning into the goodness of being and and in some ways um putting your future in its arms what
1: and you can make the case that maybe it's something that should have never happened But that doesn't seem to be productive to me. And faith seems to be, I'm going to act as if being is ultimately justifiable. And that if I partake in it properly, I will improve it rather than making it worse. So I think that's the statement of faith. And then what seems to go along with that is something like truth in conception and action. You know, even people like Jacob, who are pretty damn morally ambivalent to begin with, get hammered a lot by what they go through. And what seems to happen is that they're hammered into some sort of ethical shape, right? So by the midpoint of their life's journey, there's people who are solidly planted who you can trust and who don't betray being or themselves or their fellow man. And so it's an interesting, I mean.
0: There's a lesson in there, of course, that, and this, this is part of my point about the poor, the poor who gain wisdom often take up religion because they learn they need a framework to work from. Because if you are in an extreme situation and you just keep kicking against the goads, um, this is, this is of course, the, what, the, uh, what Jesus says to Saul on the road to Damascus. Why are you kicking against the goads? Jacob, you're your evil and conniving ways are not getting you what you want but of course behind the whole jacob story is as behind the whole abraham story this promise of blessing it
1: seems reasonable to me to first assume that you have to establish a relationship with something that's transcendent it might even be just the future version of you but and then second that you have to align yourself with reality in a truthful manner and that that's your best bet and the biblical stories are actually quite realistic about that too because they don't really say that if you do that you're going to be instantly transported to the promised land like even Moses, as we'll find out in the Exodus stories he never makes it to the promised land and so it's not like you're offered instantaneous final redemption if you move out forthrightly into the world, establish a faithful relationship with being, and attempt to conduct yourself with integrity. But it's your best bet, and it might be good enough. And even if it's not good enough, it's really preferable to the alternative, which seems to be something closely akin to hell, both personal and social.
0: There's a point in the Exodus Seminar when and this is this is one of the one of the segments I do want to do commentary on where, where he basically says that I think it's I think it's with the I think it's with the the Hebrew midwives that he's afraid of not doing the right thing because he sees that no one ever gets away with anything. And and so you see with Jordan a real sense of structure to the universe. And and this is why this is why, again, I, I sort of came up with God number one and God number two because this, I, I think Jordan's God number one, which is sort of the arenic God, the God that's built in. Of course, now this built in God eventually sort of morphed into deism and that sort of morphed into atheism, but. But Peterson's belief in the structure of the universe, others might call this natural law, is this very consistent in his worldview, and it's underneath a lot of his admonitions.
1: So Joseph's father is Jacob, later Israel, he who wrestles with God. And we've talked about that a little bit. It's sort of implicit in what I've been saying, is that I think we all do that to some degree. Um, we wrestle with reality itself, that's for sure. Not only the reality we understand, but the reality we... The God number one. Don't understand, which is sort of a transcendent reality, and then maybe whatever reality is outside of that, you know, because the classic Judeo-Christian conception of God is that there's time and space, and of course, there's lots of things about what exists in time and space that we're completely ignorant of and that's transcendent in that sense, but then there's an idea that there's a realm outside of that, which is a... Well, it's an interesting idea. It's a very sophisticated idea, I think, rather than a simple idea.
0: It's at the heart of C.S. Lewis's miracles, um, because C.S. Lewis says, well, sort of the atheist perspective is that all there is is sort of this physical interlocking of cause and effect, and that's the whole show. And Lewis makes the point, what if the whole show isn't all there is?
1: It's it's difficult to know what to make of it, but it, it doesn't really matter, because... I think, regardless of what your attitude is towards those sorts of things intellectually, you still end up in the same position as Jacob, for all intents and purposes, practically speaking. Because I don't think that there's anyone who, at some point in their life, or perhaps even every day, doesn't at some level wrestle with God. And you could just call it, well, the nature of reality, I suppose, if you want to be say, reductionistic about it, but I don't think it makes any difference. It's still something you're stuck with. And it's not only the nature of reality itself that you have to struggle with, but it's also the nature of your moral relationship to it, your behavioral relationship to it. So that's how you should perceive it and how you should conduct yourself. And then whether or not the the advantages of doing it properly are worth the difficulty and the disadvantages. So that seems to me just a straight existential statement. Then, you know, Jacob gets damaged by his wrestling, which is also very realistic. So, anyways, he also ends up as father of Joseph, who's the favorite son. Son who's born in his old age to his favorite wife. And that's who we're going to talk about to, today. So, you remember... So, Jacob is the forefather of the twelve... So,
0: remember, this is, this is all review so far.
1: ...12 tribes of Israel. And there's his, his wives. And the, son, and the offspring that resulted. Those are all the sons. There's a daughter named Dinah as well. And Rachel is the woman he really loved.
0: Now, it's helpful to look at this list. Um, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun are all sons of Leah. Um, Zilpah and Bilha are concubines. They are servants of Rachel and Leah given by, um, given by Laban. Uh, Rebecca's brother. Rebecca is Jacob's mother. Uh, Gad and Asher, Dan and Naphtali, and then Rachel of course is the, the preferred wife, and her two sons, number 11 and 12, are Joseph and Benjamin.
1: Then the first son he had with Rachel was Joseph, and that was when he was older, and so that's in some sense why Joseph is his favorite. So, this is the beginning of the story of joseph now israel jacob loved joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors and there's a lot packed into those two sentences you know the first is that now israel loved joseph more than all his other children that's probably not so good one of the things we've seen in the stories that have preceded this is that whenever there's marked preference on the part of parents for one child over the other and it, and it, with with uh, with Jacob and Esau, it was Rachel was, uh, um, Jacob was Rachel's favorite, and Esau was um, Isaac's favorite. That didn't work out so well. That put a real twist in the entire structure of the family. And so there's a warning there right off the bat. You might say, well, you can't help having a preference for one child over another, but... I don't know if that's true, and it's certainly something that you should be very cautious about, because it doesn't seem to work out very well. Because he was the son of his old age, fair enough, and he made him a coat of many colors. That's a very interesting image, that coat of many colors, that, that idea. And so I'm going to delve into that idea, because it sets the stage, like it says what sort of person Joseph is, he's favored, he's younger, he's favored, but he also has this particular garment that characterizes
0: him, you know, and, one of the things watching Peterson in this is he's, he feels more relaxed. Now he feels very relaxed in the Exodus seminar. I mean, he's surrounded by friends. Part of what I think all of the battle, all of the attack that he underwent in the five years between now and when this was was something I would I would imagine is is absolutely expected which is he's much more guarded now he's just used to being hit that um and he wasn't i mean it was it was after of course january was his kathy newman interview and then by you know then very quickly his wife was um, diagnosed with cancer and the last time i saw him i saw him at one of the last public appearances in san francisco in the middle of june we went there with our our meetup group our estuary group we uh, had a special room to do an estuary meeting beforehand we were able to uh, spend some time um, with the uh, the breakout group and ask questions but that was that was one of his last personal appearances and then of course he was he was gone Um, and uh, you know went into the underworld
1: one of the things i've really learned from analyzing women's dreams in particular is that women very frequently, in my experience, very frequently dream of clothing as a role. And so if you're interpreting women's dreams, then if they put on the shoes of their grandmother, for example, then you understand very rapidly that the dream is trying to make an association between their own behavior and something that's characteristic of either the state of being a grandmother or the particular grandmother. And it makes sense, right, because clothing protects, but it also signifies a role. And uh, it's interesting in, in the Old Testament stories, often if someone is going to act deceitfully, they change, their, they change their outfit. And that's kind of what you do when you act deceitfully, right? You dress up like someone else. You present yourself like someone else.
0: So, Of course, he's, the, the, the great story of that is when Jacob um, puts on, you know, they kill a goat and they put the fur on his arm so he can pass, like, pass for hairy Esau. Esau must have been hairy indeed.
1: Anyways, back to the coat of many colors. Well, for something to be many-colored, it sort of spans the entire gamut of possibility. And so there's a hint there that if you want to be a full-fledged person, that you have to manifest a very large number of traits. And so I want to go into that idea a bit. The first thing I want to talk about is some of the things that we've learned about what happens to you when you go to a new environment. You know, there's this idea in, a very deep idea in clinical psychology, a fundamental idea, which is that if someone's anxious about something, what you do is you, and it's getting in their way, you take what they're anxious about and you define it, because that already delimits it, right? Because one of the problems with being anxious about something is you won't speak of it. It's like Voldemort. And then if you don't speak of it, you it's way bigger than it should be. As soon as you start talking about it, you cut it down to size. And so, and it, it's for a bunch of reasons. It's because you're not as afraid, you're not as afraid of as many things as you think, and you're braver than you know, and more and more capable.
0: So as soon as you're... And, and in ministry, I, I often notice, I mean, a lot, what he described here is a lot of what happens in ministry. people People tell me their anxieties, and when they name them, okay, they're just there. And, and usually when they get them out in the open, they begin to realize, oh, oh, okay, well, this isn't, it, it's somehow, so, so often people are first anxious and they find things to be anxious about.
1: You're brave enough to start talking about what you're afraid of, then you see that there's more to you than you thought and that there's less to the problem than you thought. And then you can decompose it further into smaller problems, and then you can figure out how to approach those smaller problems. And so, and then it doesn't seem to me to be that you get less frightened. It seems to be that you get more courageous, which is way better than being less frightened because there's lots of things to be frightened about. So if you're courageous, that that really does the trick. Now the question is, what happens if you, like, let's say that you're uh, very socially inept and you don't know how to introduce yourself or to make re- any re- establish the initial parts of a relationship with anyone, and so then you start putting yourself in situations where you're required to do that. And so then the question is, how is it technically that you transform? You say, well, you learn. Well, we want to be more specific about that. What does it mean that you learn? Well, if you're dealing with someone who's particularly socially inept and you're doing psychotherapy with them, you might teach them how to shake someone's hand properly and say their name and remember the other person's name. And so you just practice that with them so that they have the motoric routine down. So that form of knowledge is built right into your body. It's like, look at the person, put out your hand, shake it. Don't, not like a dead halibut, but you know, with a reasonable grip, say your name, don't mumble it. Look, look at them so that they can hear you. And then when they say their name, try to remember it. And that's, and then so you can practice that with people. And so then they
0: develop something that's motoric, right? It's embedded right in their body. It's procedural knowledge. And so, now, now again, one of the things that was so beautiful about this this part of Peterson before I say this often, but I say it often because I feel it. He lost his clinical practice because of all of what happened to him after this, and so much of so much of the wisdom that he was able to transmit was earned. Um, I, I watched. Uh, James Frazzi's I watched James Frazzi's conversation with me and he brought up the, the Jungian thing that Peterson repeats often beware of unearned wisdom. All of this wisdom that Peterson was giving out was wisdom that he had earned and he had a degree of authority when he's going over something simple like this. One of the things that I find so often in so much high level public discourse is that Perhaps a part of our wisdom crisis is that so many of the people that we live with are, are people that are filling our heads and our ears and our eyes are so disconnected from the, the basics of life that you and I need to manage. When's the last time Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden put gas in the car, bought a loaf of bread, had to make eggs for themselves? On and on and on and on. And and same with celebrities, same with you know, once once you get to a certain social status and wealth part, you you don't know this. Um, you know, what he just described there is something that, you know, kids don't grow up in this world knowing what to do. They might do it because they saw their parents do it, if they had good parents. If in fact, they lived with their parents, and especially boys, if boys were living with their dad, Um, I was living with my dad but I I remember um, this was what my grandfather my maternal grandfather um, you know he would would hold out his hand and say his name and introduce himself forthrightly not like a halibut
1: and then you can say to them well the other thing you can do is when you start a conversation is don't sit there thinking about what you're going to say next because then you won't be paying attention to the person and you'll make a fool out of yourself because you'll manifest non sequiturs right because you'll get out of it's like if you're dancing and all you're paying attention to is where your feet are then you're going to step on the other person all the time so you want to pay attention to the other person
0: again another illustration one of the things you learn as a preacher is the points you can you can repeat the points you're making all the time and in fact as preachers you often do you repeat these points on and on and on it's one of the things i learned about um that that George W. Bush did as a president that I really admired. I used to watch him and think, gosh, he repeats himself again and again and again and again. And then it dawned on me, this isn't by accident. He understands how to communicate, and you repeat and you repeat and you repeat. But people don't remember the points. They remember the illustrations. And so when you come at, if you can take wisdom from the Bible and you can add illustrations to it, that's what people remember because, again, all these little stories—they can be fictional stories—but all these little illustrations. It's what gives people procedural knowledge, and when these stories give are emotional, they give people perspectival knowledge. And and Peterson, after all of this, all of these years of dealing with students, being a clinician, and again as a clinician, not just being a th- a, a therapist to the stars but being a therapist to people at low economic level, low intelligence and saying, these are some of the basic building blocks where we can make your life better. So much of that is needed.
1: And then whatever
0: automatized
1: social knowledge you have will come to the forefront. So it's a good thing to know if you're socially anxious, right? If you're socially anxious, one of the things you should do is pay way more attention to the person you're talking to rather than less, and you should pay as little attention as possible to yourself. So if you feel yourself falling in because you're anxious, then what you do is you push your attention out and pay attention to the person, because to the degree that you've been socialized, then all your automatic responses will kick in. So, but anyway, so you go out into the social world, and you learn to shake someone's hand, and you learn how to listen to them and ask them questions, because that's the next thing, because people love You can't just ask them random questions obviously but if they start talking to you and you don't understand something about what they're saying or maybe something they said is interesting and you ask them a question they're pretty damn happy about that because it means you're actually paying attention to them and people actually love to be paid attention to because it hardly ever happens so they Uh,
0: yes yes and in terms of ministry it just in terms of being a human being if you listen to people if you pay attention to them I mean, that's, that's the agopic love that Verveke um, talked about in that great clip. You can find it on the Vanderclips channel. Really, really
1: like it. And so, okay, so, so what's happening? Well, first of all, you're mastering the automated motor movements, right? Where to point your eyes, where to put your hands, how to move your lips, like really embodied knowledge. It's a special kind of...
0: Procedural knowledge.
1: Memory, and you're practicing that. And so that's building new skills for you. And then by listening to the person and watching yourself interact, you're also generating new, new abstract information that enables you to conceptualize the world in a different way. So if you go out to...
0: And listening is deeply participatory.
1: 10, you go out and talk to 10 different people or 50 different people, then you get to listen to what those 50 people said. You get to watch how, they're, how they express themselves and you gather a corpus of knowledge that changes the way you perceive, that broadens you as a social agent. Okay, so that's two forms of knowledge. But then there's a third one, which is really interesting, which is that, you know, you have a lot of biological potential. And it's hard to know what potential is, but part of it is that you're capable of generating proteins that you haven't been generating. So you should get right on that, by the way. So. But what, the way that works, in part, is that if you put yourself in a radically new situation, then your brain, that, that there are genetic switches that turn on, because of the demands of the new situation, that code for new proteins. So, it's as if you have latent software, that would be one way of thinking about it, that will only be turned on if you go into the situation where that's necessary. And so then you might think, well, if that's the case, how much of you could be turned on if you went a whole bunch of different places? And that's a really, really, that's a profound question, because one of the deep answers to how you should get your life together is, you should go a very large number of places, and turn yourself on. And I want to walk through that a little bit, because there's a very rich, symbolic world that expresses that. So, now, the idea about having a coat of many colors would be that the person who is the appropriate leader, because, remember, or the proper person, which would be the same thing, one of the things that these old stories are trying to express and to figure out is, how is it that you should act, which is the same as what constitutes the ideal. Those are the same questions. And the hint here with Joseph is, well, you should wear a coat of many colors, which means that you should be able to go have a drink in the pub with the guys who are, you know, drywalling your your house, and you should be able to have a sophisticated conversation with someone who's more educated in an abstract way, and that maybe you should be equally comfortable in both situations, right? Because you might think, well, there's more. One of the indications that there's more to you is that you can be put more places and function properly, and that would be a good thing to aim at, because here's the other issue, is that you know perfectly well that the fundamental tragedies of life, and your exposure to malevolence in the course of that life, so those being the worst things, there's not a lot you can do to, to alter that fundamentally, because they're conditions of existence. You're going to be subject to your vulnerability, and you're going to be subject to malevolence. That's that. And you can't hide from it because it actually makes it worse. So you're stuck with it. So then the question is, well, what are your options? And one option is to curse the structure of being for being malevolent and tragic, and fair enough. And the other is to make... Back to, back
0: to the question of Cain.
1: ...make yourself so damn differentiated and dynamic and able that you're more than a match for that. Now, that's not an easy thing, but it doesn't matter because, like, what, what's the alternative? There's no good alternative, and that's also worth knowing. So,
0: all right, I'm going to pause it here. I'm out of time right now for working on this today. Um, Jacob said, "What?" Jacob said, "You know, what, what, what about the two-hour videos?" Well, the, the, the length of the video these days is often a function of the amount of time that I can devote to a video. And today, for you know, just as a pastor, we had the uh, coffee break is our women's Bible study, and they had their their Christmas luncheon today. And I am the only man that ever gets to uh, participate in these things. We've had other men, um, we've had other men try to go to the women's Bible study, and they kick them out. But I am the uh, I am the one who can the one who can actually who can actually go. And so we played the towel game and we ate, we ate lunch. And, I mean, all of these women are old enough or older than my mother. <laughs> a couple of them are a little younger than my mother. But uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a delightful time. So that was, people often have a question, how do, how do, what do pastors do during the week? Now, obviously, I make videos and, you know, you answer calls and you give a lot of what you do is pay attention to people. That's so much of what pastoring is, and um, and sometimes you give them a little bit of hopefully godly counsel, and uh, then you do a few things around the church. But um, I've got a uh, yep. This is this is the time I have. So I hope this is helpful. Um, let me know in the comments section. Now again, I'm I'm not digging into anything real deeply in this running back over and. You know the this talk goes to about two hours and fourteen minutes. Like I said, I just listened to the whole thing a couple of days ago, and really liked it. I, I just found it tremendously helpful to go back over one of these old videos and watch it, and you can you can sense how things have changed, and you can really see why this had the impact that it did. Um, it's a yeah, and, and again, some people will look at the Exodus Seminars. It's, it's not like the old. Well, it'll never be like the old. Uh, that's part of one of the things that I learned from Clay Rutledge is the value of nostalgia. Clay Rutledge's conversation with Jordan Peterson was excellent. But um, there's there's really some there's really some good stuff in here, and it's well worth going over. So, yeah, and, the, the, you know, there's... So many of his other, some of his new stuff. I want to go over, again the Matt Ridley conversation. If you haven't watched it, the conversation with I keep forgetting the, the guy's name. It's the it's the one that has magic mushrooms in the title, but it's that that's a that's a, and the whole Daily Wire video of that. That's a profound video. Um, Peterson is. I've made these comments before, so I'll leave it at I'll leave it at this. Uh, leave a comment. Let me know what you think if you watched this and it was helpful, or you have some feedback. So your your feedback is important.